The following program is sponsored by the National Prayer Chapel. It's time to blow the trumpet in Zion. Welcome to Pilgrim's Progress. Brought to you by the National Prayer Chapel in Woodbridge, Virginia. With special guest, pastor, and teacher, Jim Kerwin. Well, I wasn't expecting a special introduction. I think Brother Ed's responsible for that. Thank you, Brother Ed. I appreciate that. We are talking about what's the context. That's our subject for the week, encouraging people, not just in their Bible reading, but how to do it with the glasses of prejudice and presupposition removed. It's part of what the Holy Spirit does for us as we... as, as we read and seek him. He's responsible for leading and guiding us into all truth. But we have to understand that we come to the word with certain prejudices. We come to the word with certain preconceptions because we just grow up with them culturally, whether they're right or wrong, or they just happen to be 21st century preconceptions or North American preconceptions. All of that has to do with how we perceive the scriptures and our job in hermeneutics, I promised I wouldn't use that word very much, but uh, it, reading the Bible in context, that is our goal this week. Now, let's do a quick review. No, let's not do a quick review. Let me do something here. Um, Brother, well, Brother Ray and Alexandra, we, we prayed before the, the meeting. They are off this week just recharging, recuperating, and... Praise God for that. I'm glad I could stand in and help them. They have asked me to share about our ministry and our upcoming missions trip. And I have felt a certain reticence about that, not because I don't believe it's an important thing. So I'll tell you what, just right up here, right up front, here's what I want to ask you to do. I would like for this time of recharge and refresh for them to last through the end of the month. And the best way to do that, other than them just being able to walk away from the mic for a little bit, is to come back to the mic knowing that the month's radio is covered. Now, I don't know what that amount is. I think it's around $4,000. How much of that has come in, if any, I don't know. So all I'll ask you to do is to pray. And if the Lord puts something on your heart, go to the website, nationalprayerchapel.com. You can donate towards that right uh, through the comfort of your little PayPal account, or you can write, send a check to a love offering to post office box 2346 Woodbridge, Virginia, 22195. And that's, of course, to National Prayer Chapel. The website is nationalprayerchapel.com. And if you would do that, that would bless me un- unbelievably, and it would bless them, and it would allow them to just come back with a with a full, maybe an over overcharge, which would be wonderful. All right, we're talking about context. We're talking about reading. You recall yesterday that we said that there's two things that are important. One is when you come to the text, you always want to ask the question, "What is the context?" and that's not just the context of the text. That is the context of other things. It would include what's the historical setting? What's the author's purpose? What is brought to bear when we consider the original language, Hebrew or Greek? Is there something there that's going to open this up to us? What do we know about the culture? And let me just give you an example of culture. I normally don't share this until the second year or the second seminar on uh, hermeneutics. We all sit down to the dinner table on chairs at a table that's about, oh, I don't know, three feet high. I've never bothered to, to measure it. But every time you read the word sitting in the New Testament, that word is always recline. It's because by Roman times, even the Jews had picked up this Greek-slash-Roman custom of 
laying down at a at a wide couch called a triclinium, and it was so-called because there were three people who could lay usually on their left sides with their their hand uh, under their left under their left uh, well the left hand under their chin, and they could eat dip into a common bowl with their right hand. Now you say, well, what difference does that make? Knowing that they didn't sit at a table, as in the famous painting of the Last Supper, where you have this table that's so wide that the two ends would probably have had to shout to each other to be heard. Jesus and the twelve apostles were on four or five of these triclinia all the way around the table. And since there were three of these, or three or four per table, for, for, per, per triclinium, per couch. And the tables were very low. The couches are maybe two feet high. The table was about the same height. Now, when John leans on Jesus' breast, now think about that in, the, in our culture. Okay, we're sitting on chairs. John has to lean way over put his, and put his head on Jesus' breast and whisper to him, who is it, Lord, that's going to betray you? That's pretty strange. We would look at somebody doing that thinking, what, what are they doing? But if John is the person immediately to Jesus' right, then he, all he has to do is lean back his head just an inch or two and ask the question very quietly. It also tells you, since Jesus gave the sop to Judas, that Judas was either on the same triclinium or he was on the next one over. He had to be within arm's reach of Jesus as Jesus was laying down there. So, there's one picture that changes radically a scene that we know well just because we know something about the culture and something about the Greek. By the way, there's one, even one of the parables where it says that the, the Lord came in and he saw the dinner guests, the wedding guests. But what it really says in the Greek is he saw the reclining ones, all the people who are on all these triclinia all over the room around these small tables enjoying rest and fellowship and good food. They were the reclining ones. There's a whole sermon in that sometime, but we're not going to go into that. Now consider where the feet are when you're on a triclinium. The feet are sticking out away from the table. They're not under the table. Have you ever tried to picture the... Actually, there's two stories, and they're not the same story. You'll know that as you continue to read and read carefully. The story of the woman washing Jesus' feet. One of them is unknown, unnamed, and no, it's not Mary Magdalene. This woman appears in Luke chapter 7, I think it is. Mary Magdalene is mentioned for the first time about 10 or 11 verses later at the beginning of chapter 8. And while we're on the subject of Mary Magdalene, if you've been in the ministry for any time, you will probably have to get in a very, very long line once you get into heaven, or maybe even to get into heaven, to apologize personally for Mary, to Mary Magdalene for calling her a woman of ill repute, because the Bible never does that. The Bible never associates her with any sin, with prostitution. You say, that's not what I've heard. Read the Bible. Don't read what you've been told it says. Just read what it says. All right. Anyhow, with the feet sticking away from the table, where are these women? Where is this woman mentioned in Luke chapter 7? Where is the woman who in the, the town of Bethany came and anointed Jesus' feet. Where are they? They are kneeling. And in their kneeling position, they are taller than anybody else at the room because everyone else is reclining. Everyone at the table can see them. They're not hiding under the table washing Jesus' feet. You see how that changes your your view of, of this whole, that story, the story of the Last Supper, far more intimate, far more exposed in, in the in case of, of the women doing the anointing. Everyone can see them. All right. 
Remember, there's a final exam on Friday, and there's two things you need to know for the final exam. When you come to the scriptures, you say, what is the context? And the other one is to remember that the con- the, the greatest context of all is the, of the, all of the scripture. And the only way to really understand any passage perfectly, well, I don't know if anybody can do it perfectly other than the Holy Spirit, but fully, as, as much as a human being can, you need to be familiar with the scriptures. Remember, Paul said, I delivered to you, I haven't held back from you the whole counsel of God. And the only way you can know the whole counsel of God is to read the whole counsel of God. So, those two things are on the exam. And Friday, I'm going to do a very cold-blooded altar call. You're to be praying during the rest of the week. And if you're not a regular I read the whole thing every year, Bible reader, then that's what I'm going to challenge you to do, to become what we call in my courses in Latin America, an elephant eater. And remember we said that how do you eat an elephant? These people look at this book and say, oh my goodness, that's so large. That's going to be a challenge for me. You read it, you eat the elephant one piece at a time, or in our case, maybe three chapters a day and you're done. That word context, I skipped over this yesterday, but context comes from a Latin word from the 15th century. Uh, It's contextus, it comes from contextere, and it means to weave together. And textere itself is, is to weave. So it's from that root, we not only get the word context, but we get the same word textile. So when we're looking at a verse or a small group of verses, what's really happening is that we are just seeing a few of the threads. When I'm in Latin America, uh, there's often uh, someone wearing a a brightly embroidered uh, blouse or sweater or something of that nature because uh, many of the indigenous people are just amazingly talented in in creating these just eye-popping Embroideries, And so I'll ask one of these sisters to stand up, and I'll go over to her, and of course I ask her permission, and I find like a bright red thread on her shoulder or somewhere up towards the, the shoulder, and I just get right down on top of it, about three millimeters away, and I say... Oh, look at this thread. It's an elo in, in Spanish. Look at this elo. It's it's red. It seems to be made of of cotton. And oh, it's such a fine spinning of this cotton. And I go on and on just about the thread. And of course, she's getting a little embarrassed at this point in time. And then I say, that's like a verse. Now, if I step back from that just a little bit, what I find is that this red thread is part of many red threads, or at least how this red thread is exposed, and it makes a pattern. It makes it makes a rose. Wow, that's amazing. So I go on about the rose, this little bitty part of the garment, and then I step back and say, but, but wait, in the context, there's something greater. This rose, it seems to be part of a, like, a, a bouquet, or a garden, and look, here's green thread that's making up leaves, and here's other colors of flowers and different types. And then I step back and I say, no, wait, it's not just this. This is all part of a of a blouse. Look at this. It's all one thing. It all comes together. There's this these riotous, colorful patterns all over. And then I step back and I say, Oh my goodness, look at there's a there's a, a a skirt that that matches this and I go on about the skirt and I say now, now I'm seeing a greater context and finally finally I say wait a minute there's somebody in this outfit I want to get to know that person. I started out so focused on the one little thread, the one little elo and Out of that, I began to appreciate more and more the context, the context of the flower, the context of the pattern, the context of the blouse, the context of the whole outfit. You know what? Jesus said something about that. He said, you search the scriptures because in them you think you have eternal life. And they are they which testify of me. And you won't come to me that you might have life. Finally, I say, look at this. 
look at this woman. Look at this sister, this pastor's wife, this pastora, this Sunday school teacher, whatever her role, her function is, her ministry. Her name is such and such, and she does so and so, and she lives in such and such a place. I'm getting to know her. That's what God wants us to do as we begin to study the scriptures, because properly done, all of this doesn't turn us into uh, cross-eyed scholars who are always trying to figure out what the text says, although there's a blessing in that. It points us to Jesus, and that's where we want to go. So the first context, uh, definition of context was that we try to see the text that we're reading inside the text, the verses and passages that come before and after. The second thing about, def- about context is we want to know about the history, the language, the culture, the purpose of the author, and we mentioned literary style as well. So here it is. The most important context is reading through the scriptures cover to cover. I was wonder if I should share this, but I'm, I'm going to do it. Um, I will not tell you to do something that I do not do. That's hypocritical to do that. The first night I got saved, that is to say the first night of my Christian walk, July 31st, 1968. I was talking about that yesterday. I made the Lord a promise that I would read through the Bible cover to cover every year. And I have done at least that. I mentioned yesterday I've now turned 50 years old in the Lord. And so I can honestly say I'm 50 and you don't have to know what my real age is, but I'm getting up there. The thing is, after after 20 years of being faithful to that, I thought, you know, I, I don't think this is enough, especially if the Lord's called me to be a Bible teacher. I don't think this is enough. So after 20 times through the scriptures, I made a promise to the Lord that I would read through the New Testament twice a year and the Old Testament once a year. And I did that for the next 19 years. But as the burden for teaching and so forth grew in me, I realized that I needed to make a greater commitment. And like I'm asking you to do on Friday, by Friday, I counted the cost and I said, Lord, the thing I really need to be doing is to read through the Old Testament twice and the New Testament four times a year. But I know that's going to cost me. And so I I spent a year praying about it, thinking about it. Was I willing to make that time commitment? And when I turned 40 in the Lord, I made that commitment. So for the last 10 plus years, I've been reading through the Old Testament twice, the New Testament four times a year with increased blessing. I'd say multiplied blessing, but sometimes I look back and it seems to be exponential blessing as God just continues to open the scriptures so that I can open them to others. And in turn, others can open them to others. That's the whole purpose of us going down into primarily Latin America, though I have been to Eastern Europe as well. So here we are. Now, I want you to do a mental exercise since I can't broadcast this on your, uh, over your radio. You have a friend, and the friend has a, a four-verse uh, passage on his or her laptop. They don't tell you what, what it is. And they say, just a minute, I want you to be able to read this. Now, what they do is they take the passage and they remove all the verse numbers they remove all of the uh, all of the punctuation the commas the periods the semicolons the paragraph markers anything then they take all of the spaces out from between the words and then they capitalize every single letter and if a word breaks at the end of a line in other words if you get the first letter of a word it just wraps on to the next line and they, they give it to you, and they say, can you read this? Well, with a little bit of work, you might be able to do that. Why do I bring this up? I bring it up because the early Christian manuscripts, and I've actually seen two of these in the British Museum when I was over there in England ministering 30, 35 years ago. I don't remember when it was. You, uh, Because of the nature of the Greek language, 
a, a position of a word in, in a sentence doesn't tell you what it does. Now, there's usually in an English sentence, you've got a subject, you've got a verb, you've got an object, indirect object, direct object, whatever it is. And so we can tell more or less by position, normal sentence structure, what a word is. In Greek, you tell how a word functions, direct object, indirect object, uh, by simply its ending. So you can take a, what looks to us like a gobbledygook of Greek and just pick out the words as you go. Why do I bring this up? It's not just a, a point. We were talking yesterday that today we would talk about verses and chapters. There were no verses and chapters in the original Greek and Hebrew. No, a couple of exceptions. All right, in the Hebrew, you have Psalms. Obviously, those are clear breaking points between uh, Psalms, although there are one or two where two are put together and one is broken apart where we count 150. They get to, in, in the Greek Old Testament, they get to 150 by a slightly different combination of psalms. So even that's not clear cut. Then there's some of the prophetic passages in Isaiah. You can tell, all right, now he's talking about Moab. That's different from his section on Babylon. That's different from his section on on Philistia. All right. But basically, no chapters, no verses. They aren't part of the inspired text. Chapters began to appear in the Hebrew text after the time of Jesus. Eventually, it went to versification. The What would have been the Latin Bible, not the English Bible, around 1200 AD, uh, Stephen Langton, who was the Archbishop of Canterbury in the early 13th century, he was the one who put down the chapters that we understand now. And then about a hundred years later, give or take, somebody went through and versified things. Now, verses and chapters are helpful in some ways. I mean, if you wanted to find God so loved the world, it helps to know it's in John chapter 3 and uh, that it's the 16th verse. The trouble is... With verses and chapters, the way we read, we are already in this mentality in our society that a little piece of data is is important, all right? And it's like, I'm going to put my entire political philosophy on a bumper sticker, or I'm going to, uh, I'm going to put the entire gospel into this, uh, the screensaver that I have. I'm going to pour out my heart in the 140 characters that I get for my Twitter tweet. Unfortunately, truth is far more involved and organic than that. And so these artificial breaks can lead us to interpretive disaster. Oh, I'm going to just snatch that verse and it's a promise. Maybe it is and maybe it isn't. Uh, you need to kind of be delivered from your Western mind long enough to be able to see the thing as a whole. They're not independent units, even even the chapters. If we come to a verse, uh, a section, I was going to use the big word pericope, but that's what it means as a section. If pericope sounds strange, just think of the word periscope, take the S out, and that's how it's spelled. Uh, a chapter with our presuppositions, even prejudices, that's usually exactly what we're going to see. And these verses kind of help us to, to fixate on that because I don't have to think about what's around the other, uh, uh, the other verses around here. And like I was saying yesterday, it's like wearing colored lenses. Now, my wife, about two years ago, had cataract surgery. And she and others who had cataract surgery tell me that when you have the surgery colors that you thought you understood are now suddenly brilliant and it's something entirely different from what you thought it was something about the fading of the lenses changes the color perception or changes the way the light comes into the eye uh, one woman told me in fact it was the sister of a, a, a missionary in Romania she said all the, all the time I wish this particular blouse were green because I liked the blouse but I didn't like the color and I came back from my surgery and I got into the closet and I thought 
Oh my goodness, it's green. It's been green all along. Let's look at a couple of examples. First, we're going to look at examples of definition one. And we're going to, uh, the definition one, remember, is the text. How does it fit in the surrounding text as its context? And probably for starting tomorrow, maybe the middle of our session, we're going to look at definition two. How does understanding the culture, the language, the history, the author's purpose, actually we're going to touch on the author's purpose here just a bit, but how do those things affect how I understand? Now, I said yesterday that this idea of rightly dividing the word is the Greek word orthotomeo, and that word is used just once in that passage in the New Testament. It's also used of Roman straight road building. Now, the thing about building things straight is you tend to accidentally stomp on people. Now, I'm probably going to stomp on two mm, closely held doctrines, but by, by different groups. So if you feel like your toes are stomped on, please understand I'm not doing it deliberately. And in, the minute, in a minute, I will get to the, uh, the other people's toes. So everybody's toes, if they're sticking out in a sort of a preconceptual aisle, so to speak, will get stomped on, but in love, only so that we can do the orthotomeo, we can rightly divide. I was once talking with a, a good Baptist friend and who was um, just had decided that the gifts of the Spirit that Paul talks about in 1 Corinthians 12, 13, 14 were, were gone. And I said, well, the New Testament spends all that time on that particular thing, and, and you tell me it's, it's just gone? Oh, yeah, it went away when the, last of, when the last of the apostles died. I said, where do you get that? And he, he turned me to, to 1 Corinthians 13 and verse 8. He says, this is in the love chapter. He says, love never fails, but if there are gifts of prophecy, they will be done away. If there are tongues, they will cease. If there's knowledge, it will be done away. For we know in part and we prophesy in part. But when the perfect comes, the partial will be done away. He said, see? And I said, no, I don't. What's the perfect? When did it come? He said, oh, oh, uh, that's the Bible. And now that we have the Bible, we don't need those things. And I said, where there does it tell you that's the Bible? And then he got this strange look on his face and said, uh, I don't know. And I said, you know, as long as you're going to do away with, with tongues and with prophecy, it also says it's going to do away with knowledge, right? Uh-huh. Well, why don't you Baptists just close down all your seminaries and Bible colleges and all the rest of that? Because if the perfect has come, then you don't need those either. That's part of knowledge, right? And he walked away kind of muttering to himself. I'm, like I say, I'm going to be an equal opportunity toe stomper here in a minute. Um, not meaning to offend, just bringing somebody to the text and saying, what's the context? In fact, I did that with him because I said, now, where is this verse? He says, it's in chapter 13, well, the section, verses 8 through 10. I said, I know that. But what's the context of what you're reading? Uh, well, I, I said, take a look at it. Paul talks at the beginning of chapter 12 about his spiritual gifts and so forth and about ministries. And then he talks about, in what we call 13, how to operate the gifts. And then in 14, he gives some really practical advice about how these things should be manifested in a particular uh, church environment. So you're telling me that right smack dab in the middle of this whole section where Paul's number one focus is to teach us about gifts and the spiritual gifts that he said, oh, well, uh, once you get to this point in the middle of chapter 13, that's it. You don't have to worry about those anymore because they're all gone. I said, isn't that ripping that, that, those three verses totally out of Paul's context and purpose? He couldn't say anything about that. While we're in chapter 13, let's stop talking about chapter 13 because what is it? Oh, it's the love chapter. No, it's not. Paul never wrote in chapters. I'm sorry, he just didn't. You know, imagine a young, madly, head-over-heels-in-love guy writing to his, his fiance. He has to be away on a business trip, and he's been gone for two weeks, so uh, I know that now he's just supposed to text her. But if he's a real romantic lady, he's going to send you a card. He's going to send you a letter, something you can hold on to, not something that will be go poof if you, you drop your phone or it drops in a puddle. And I tell you, people don't write love letters by dear 
Uh, chapter 1, verse 1. Dear Annie, verse 2. I love you and miss you so much I can hardly breathe. Chap- verse 3 and verse 4 and verse 5 and verse 6. They just write and it flows out of them. It flows out. So, Paul writes in the same way. Now, Corinthians, if you read it carefully, it does have some sections. And in this section of what we call three chapters, Paul's writing about one subject to clear up the matter about spiritual gifts, what they are, what motive they're to be used with, and how they're to function in the church. And he puts some parameters on them. That's his whole purpose. That's the purpose of the context, all right? That's where he's going with it. Ah, all right, but... All right, so there's no love chapter. Sorry about that. You can still use it at your wedding if you want. That's fine by me. But just understand that Paul never thought about writing a love chapter. He thought he was t- writing a chapter about the motivation, the the heart purity, the inner reason for manifesting these gifts was love for God and love for the brethren. Now, if you're one of those Pentecostals right now who's rubbing your hands with glee, saying, man, he got those Baptists. Uh, excuse me, my fellow Pentecostal charismatic person. Have you looked at those verses, those chapters about the spiritual gifts in the context of First Corinthians, the entire book? Because if you do, you're going to stop rubbing your hands and you're going to be seeking God and asking him to deliver you from your immaturity. Now, I could pick this up at the end of chapter 2, but for the sake of time, I'm going to pick it up in chapter 3, verse 1. He's writing to all the Corinthians. This is still part of him rolling into the purposes of, of the why he sent this letter. And he says, And I, brethren, could not speak to you as to spiritual men, but as to men of flesh, as to infants in Christ. I gave you milk to drink, not solid food, for you were not able to receive it. The implication is when I was there. Indeed, even now you are not yet able, for you are still fleshly. So everything that proceeds from this point in the Corinthian epistle, the first one onwards, including spiritual gifts, including Even that passage, the wonderful passage about the resurrection teaching in in chapter 15, it's all baby food, according to Paul, according to the context. So I'm sorry, I'm sorry, my friend Pentecostal charismatic, I just stomped on your toes too, but it's because you don't understand the context. Oh, I have all these gifts. Yeah, well, you better move well beyond those. You know, I learned to walk and uh, to feed myself and all the rest of it. I still do all of that. But nobody claps and applause and says, oh, look, Pastor Jim, he's walking. Oh, look, Pastor Jim just put a bite in his own mouth and he didn't miss. That's part of growing up. You don't throw those gifts away, but you say, all right, God, what more do you have? And you move on in that. All right, so there's just some thoughts about a verse, a chapter, and an entire concept in 1 Corinthians, Paul's writing to immature Christians. This will, this will be a, uh, this next point will be a multi, a multi cross-denominational toe-stomping, I'm afraid. One of our favorite verses in the United States in the Christian churches, Philippians 4.3, I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me. And we seem to treat it like a, a positive confession or a, a positive thinking or kind of psyching ourselves up. Yes, I can do this. But is that what Paul was trying to communicate? So the answer is no. And we ask the question, What's the context? And here's how it takes us. Let me just read verses 11 through 13. This is what Paul's talking about. He is giving a testimony. The Philippians have sent him a gift. He is sending them a nice thank you note. I hope you send thank you notes when people send you gifts. I know that's old-fashioned. But I tell you what, it blesses people. It may speak to some of your unsaved friends, neighbors, family members. If you would take the time to write out a little note on a card, 
we we do that for people's birthdays and anniversaries, uh, people we haven't seen for years. And they contact us and say, you know what? You're the only one who remembered my birthday anniversary. Or there's one particular case where we acknowledge every year uh, a tragic death of somebody's child. And we were involved with them right after the death. And we know it's a sore point. We know you never stop loving your child even 20 years after the fact. So we send a card. So he's sending this thank you note. And he says, not that I speak from want, for I have learned to be content in whatever circumstances I am. I know how to get along with humble means. I also know how to live in prosperity. In any and every circumstances, I have learned the secret of being filled and going hungry, both of having abundance and suffering need. I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me. What's that verse, I can do all things through Christ strengthens me, mean? It's Paul's testimony. He says it doesn't matter if it's good or if it's bad, if there's blessing or if there's problem, if there's persecution, if there's fellowship with the saints, if I don't have anything to eat or my cupboards are full, if it seems like God is blessing me or nobody knows where God is, doesn't matter. I can, I can do all things because Christ strengthens me. So he was giving this as a testimony Perhaps we ought to stop using it as a uh, just this positive confession thing and go on to say, you know what, Lord, I want to have that testimony so that in the end, and oh, you know what that means? It means you're going to have to get along with humble means. It means that you're going to have to learn what it means to go hungry. It means that you're going to suffer need if you're going to have that testimony. See, we like to read it and we say, oh, uh, I know I know how to live in prosperity. I know the secret of being filled. I know uh, I, I know having abundance. Uh, okay, let's balance it off. Let's put it in context, and may God give to each of us this testimony from real life that I have been able to do all things through Christ, who strengthens me. I'm not certain whether I should start this next thing yet or not, because sisters, you are going to love this. Brothers, you're going to grit your teeth for a while until you see it in context. And it's the passage in Ephesians 5 about wives submit and husbands love your wives. But so that I don't get, I don't disappoint Ray and Alexandra, let me just tell you that we go to the mission field, and this is the kind of stuff we start people with. This is just the this is just the opening round. Lord willing, I'm going to with my wife going down to Peru. We're going to be in four different locations uh, in Peru. We'll be in Lima proper. We will be in a uh, extreme suburb up the mountainous desert hill at a place called Hikamarca. We'll be in Chiangkai, and we'll actually fly over the Andes. Uh, just it's an hour's flight, but it's a twelve-hour drive to a town called Huanaco, and in Huanaco and in um, in the, the capital city Lima, we have already taught the first two sections of hermeneutics. What you're hearing this week, and then the second section is the first part of woman in the kingdom of God, because. Once you see God's teaching about women and Paul's teaching about women in the context of the entire scripture, which you can't do if you're not reading the entire Bible through, people get really excited. Even the men finally get it and see what God is up to in the scriptures there. So two of the places we're going to be going through the third session, which is the second half of woman in the kingdom of God. And in the one of the places... We will be going, that, that will be Hikamarka. We'll be going through the second part of hermeneutics, which is the first part of Woman in the Kingdom of God. And then we'll start from scratch in Chiangkai because we've never been there before. We go from there, and, and as the Lord opens and as the need becomes clear, what these different places need in uh, Honduras and Nicaragua, in Guatemala, and so forth, we kind of just tailor what the what the teaching is sometimes they tell us what we need sometimes what they need sometimes they we pray and god gives it to us but everything is based on this matter of 
Read the Bible. I share with you about how much the Guatemalans have grown. I'm seeing the same growth in these other places I've been. I've now been to Honduras twice in the last 13 months, actually three times, but the third time was uh, an accident because we were actually escaping from Nicaragua during the, the, the riots that maybe you did or didn't hear about because I didn't get too much coverage in um, in the states on the news media. And there's still desperate times going on there, so please continue to pray for Nicaragua. We're, we're going down this particular trip, for which we don't have much money yet, is... $4,000. It's for the two of us to go. And you say, oh, that's a lot of money. I know it is for me too, especially. But you know, the number of people that we teach and we put through a three-day seminar in four different locations, I think it comes out to just a few cents over $30 per person. So about $10 per person per day. I mean, if you cover the, if you split up the airfare there's two places where we have to stay in hotels because the saints can't really put us up. And there's other places where, um, you know, we can stay in the in the church or we can stay in the, in the compound. That's fine. I don't mean a missions. Well, I guess in one place it is sort of a missions compound as well as a church. Now, I do stay places, other, other, other countries where <laughs> the superintendent, comfortable bed, not only is there no hot shower, there's just no shower, period. You do a cold, very cold, mountain water cold bath every morning if you want to get rid of this, the sweat. So I would love for you to pray about, this is why I brought up the need here for National Prayer Chapel, because I'd love for you to go to finestoftheweet.org and just... Look at what we have there, because it's typical of what we're teaching, especially overseas. And if it's a blessing to you, then please, by all means, pray about whether or not the Lord will have you help us go there. It's not for us, but it's for all of these young leaders, the, the young people down in, in Peru especially. It's it's amazing to see the they they just soak it up like sponges, especially the, the folks in Hikamarca. They, uh, they if they could, they'd have me teach several more days in a row. It's just not practical, but they just love it. The reason Denise is going this time, and by the way, Denise isn't on the radio with me this week because she's out on the West Coast with her ailing siblings. But uh, she's going because one of the churches has asked us to come in addition to hermeneutics and share with them about marriage. Now, I could go and share about marriage, but it makes a lot more sense for a couple to go. And then one says, we want to, we're in an outreach mode. We're getting ready to go out and plant churches and uh, Bible studies and so forth. Well, you know what? My wife's an MK, a missionary kid. She knows a lot about missions from a very practical standpoint. Not only growing up separated from her parents nine months out of the year in West Africa while they were minister, her parents were ministering in Cote d'Ivoire, Ivory Coast, West Africa, but also just the life that we've been living for the last 10 years. So she has a special input. That's why she's going on this particular trip. And because it's safe, some of the places I go to, I would not want my wife to go to just because they are not safe. All right, I've done that. I just want to to let you know that there's a blessing there. There's amazing fruit that's gone on. If you go to the website and you sort of scroll down, you'll see various newsletters that we've done. You can also sign up for the newsletter, but going through the older ones will give you an idea of the things that have happened and how things have built, how we've been able to raise funds to get pastors, things, basic things like concordances and a Bible dictionary and a one-volume commentary, things that they could never hope to afford short of a special blessing from God. And folks have helped us to do that in two different countries now, one group in Nicaragua and one group in uh, Guatemala. In fact, that was early on. That sort of fed the fire. All right, if you got your Bibles, turn with me, or maybe you don't need to. I was going to say turn with me to Ephesians 5, 22 to 24. And I'm going to be honest with you. Um, we're saving the best part of this until tomorrow, not because I want to do that, not because I mean, just because I don't think we've got enough time to really get into it. But 
there's an opportunity here because I want you to read through this passage, but I want you to back up and look at the context. Look at what comes before this passage, Ephesians 5, 22 through 24, and Ephesians, and what comes after. And I want you to pretend like there are no verses and there's no chapter headings and see what you come up with before we talk about it tomorrow. Speaking of context, and we mentioned Ephesians 3, uh, I'm sorry, John 3, 16. For God so loved the world. That for there is functioning almost like a therefore. Without opening your Bible, without pulling out your phone, uh, which has a Bible app on it, let me ask you this. What's the for, therefore? What is John referring to? What comes before? Do you know what's in John 3.14 and John 3.15? Because if you don't know what's in John 3.14 and John 3.15, how can you know what John 3.16 is all about? Because it's sort of the the culmination of this short argument, a a reference to an Old Testament story that happened to the children of Israel. And once you see how that fits in with that story, wow, John 3.16 just takes on just huge ramifications and, and it's far more glorious and wonderful. But, you know, I've never been in a group and I'm thinking of maybe this group too, where I could say, what comes before John 3.16? Don't open your Bible. Nobody knows. Nobody knows. All right. John, uh, I'm sorry, Ephesians 5, 22 to 24. I've done a lot of pastoral counseling. And one of the ones I used to get all the time is a Christian couple would come into my office. I'm thinking especially of, of some situations I did when I was pastoring up in the Syracuse, New York area. And they'd come in with their Bibles and they'd sit sort of on opposite ends of the sofa in my office. And, and the husband would say, Pastor, my wife doesn't submit to me like it says here in Ephesians 5. And the wife would say, well, Pastor, my husband doesn't love me as Christ loved the church. And it just used to drive me crazy because, first of all, they're coming at it with the wrong attitude. I wish back then I had been able to see this in context, but I didn't. It takes reading with care, reading with diligence, and just repeated reading and the Holy Spirit opening up the heart in order to understand these things that seem to remain hidden. So this one time I just I'd had it. I'd had enough. And I went to my desk. I got up from, I actually had a rocking chair there. You'll find that I'm associated with rocking chairs. It's very important that I have a good, comfortable rocking chair. Not so much because of the rocking, though that's nice. It's one of those things that allows me to categorically prove, especially when I'm teaching things like this, that I am not off my rocker when I teach things like this. All right. So I got up out of my rocker. I went to the my desk. I pulled out a pair of scissors and I said, "Fella, please give me your Bible." And sister, please give me your Bible. And I took them over to my desk and I was just just clapping the scissors and I opened each Bible up to Ephesians five and I pretended I wasn't actually going to do it. I pretend like I was going to cut and I grabbed the the brother's Bible first and just it's, it's sort of like. Abraham about to offer up Isaac, you know, just the knife is by Isaac's throat. <laughs> and, the, and the fellow says, Pastor, what are you doing? And I said, well, this part about wives, love your, wives submit to your husbands, that's written to your wife. That's not written to you. So I'm just going to cut that right out of the Bible. And you, sister, this part that says uh, husbands love your wives, that's written to your husband, not to you. It's none of your business. So I'm just going to cut that out of your Bible. And he said, Pastor, please don't cut our Bibles. Well, I didn't. I didn't mean to. But it got their attention, got their attention that they weren't paying attention to the part that was about them. But, oh, 10, 15 years ago, I don't remember when it was, I was reading through this passage and the Lord showed it to me in context. And we will have just a teeny bit of time to start that. When you're reading, when you're reading this, start 
it's it's hard to break into a Pauline sentence sometimes because he goes on and on and on and on and and you know if he had to if he spoke like he wrote he must have had huge lungs because he could go and go and go and go before he came to a period so we have to break into it somewhere break into it in verse 18 and read it all the way through to chapter 6 verse 9 because the key to this passage is one that we've separated from the passage. We all know the scripture says in Ephesians 5.18, be filled with the Spirit or be being filled with the Spirit. But this is the thing that allows wives submit, husbands love to work. If you don't start with being filled with the Spirit, none of the rest of it works. It's all New Testament legalism. I'm sorry, that's just what it is. So, verse 19 talks about mutual edification, worshiping, giving thanks in verse 20, and then verse 21 gives you the key for the next, I don't know, 15 verses or so. Submitting to one another in the fear of Christ. And as you look at this tonight, we'll go over it tomorrow, see how you how you did. Paul lays out six different examples of the mutual submission he's talking about in Ephesians 5, verse 21. The first two of which are wives submit, husbands love. But remember... He's saying, all of you submitting to one another in the fear of Christ. Interesting stuff. When you read that, husband and wives read that, oh my goodness, you can't do it without being filled with the Spirit. You can't be filled with the Spirit without worshiping and giving thanks and wanting to build the other person up. And because you've been dealt with, Submitting to everybody else is no big deal at all because your old man is dead, your self is crucified, and you live for your wife, for your husband, for everybody else in your life. Nobody has to tell you submit. Nobody has to tell you to love. You do it because the spirit of Jesus, who submitted to the Father and everything, is living in you and guiding you. All right, we've come to about the end of the hour. Let's just pray. Father, thank you so much for these people who have a a growing hunger for your word. Lord, I thank you for the ones who are reading faithfully. I thank you for the ones who want to be reading faithfully. And I ask that you would move in the hearts of those who are indifferent, but know they should be. Father, take the rest of this week, take the words I've shared today and make them sharp, make them inviting, make them powerful to move and to help people overcome inertia. I ask that in Jesus' name. Well, that's it. We're at the end of our time. You have been listening to Pilgrim's Progress, a ministry of National Prayer Chapel, and I am Jim Kerwin. You can find more teaching from me on finestoftheweet.org. Thank you. Blessings. And pick up that Bible and read it. Read it for all it's worth. Read it carefully. Read it passionately. And read it in context. Amen. Joy. Now unto him who is able to keep you from falling and to present you blameless before the presence of his glory with great joy. Cry.